Revelation is the last book of the Bible. It's, it's a, apocalyptic, which sometimes is associated with the end of the world. It actually means uh, an uncovering. And, and through Revelation, Jesus is uncovering to a group of people um, things that are about to happen or will happen someday. That's kind of up for us to interpret. And so uh, we're going to get into today... Um, uh, Jesus has some specific things to talk to seven real-time churches in the ancient world. And uh, very practically speaking, uh, these are, are people going through immense struggles and almost certainly would have looked at their environment and thought, this is it, this is the end, there's no way we're going through it. And so I titled today, Doomsday Prepping. Because uh, there's a lot uh, that has been talked about over the past decade or so. Really started probably with the year 2000. Uh, doomsday prepping is a phrase that has become probably household. There was an American pastor in early 2020, mid 2020, whatever, that said he had dreams in early 2020 tipping him off about uh, the upcoming year. So he claimed and who am I to, to doubt? He claimed that, that God had, through a dream, tipped him off, that there would be a, um, a great pandemic or there would be a huge problem on a national level in March of 2020. And then he saw uh, rioting and protests and great disruption in May of 2020, coinciding with um, the Floyd situation. And then uh, again in November, he saw a great disruption surrounding the elections. And his advice to his congregation and to any Christian that would listen was, you need to be stockpiling ammo and food to get ready for these great disruptions. In other news... Around the mid-2000-teens, okay, like 2014 or whatever, there was a, a reality TV show from the National Geographic, I think it was, called Doomsday Preppers. And uh, they would, they would uh, take a panel of, I don't know, doomsday preparation experts, and they would uh, go to these different families throughout the country and show their, their doomsday prep setup and evaluate and score them based on, on how well they were prepared for, you know, a zombie apocalypse or whatever. And so I remember uh, there was one episode, um, I've, I've watched a few for some reason, uh, there was one episode where this family had this like tight underground bunker. Air holes were from like bird feeders, like faux bird feeders that came up out of the ground. They had like, you know, furniture and food, MREs ready to go, um, heat supplies, climate control. And at the end of the show, the, uh, the expert said, well, there's, there's one problem. You guys have no place to put your poop. So they, they forgot uh, what that, that, that word um, in a statistic I made up to get myself out of an awkward lack of laughter. Um, <laughs> saying that word lowers your blood pressure and raises your inner peace 
another episode. <laughs> another episode. There's a 70 plus, um, a couple well into their 70s, two story house. The second story, uh, they had converted into like a lookout and they ran through their drills uh, daily. And so the cameras were rolling while this couple uh, ran through their drills and the husband would give the like initiation command and the wife's like scurrying over and bolting the door and scurrying over and bolting the window while the husband is slowly making his way up the ladder to the second floor where armed with whatever it is that he had, he had everybody outflanked as the zombies or militia or whoever approached. And, and then um, his pride and joy uh, he had the mailbox rigged with an explosive so that should the militia regroup and reload under heavy fire coming from the second, he, he and they would never know what hit him, nor would the mailman in a malfunction. So, doomsday prepping is a thing. It's a hobby, an obsession, some combination for many people. But how should a follower of Jesus respond in a doomsday scenario? What should we do if the wheels fell off? Should we stockpile ammo? I mean, can you love your enemy while making plans to kill him? Maybe that's an unfair question. Should you stockpile food? Or should we just, like, embrace death? What should we do? So, um, if you're newer to this series, you might consider, uh, you can get the early survey stuff I did from a couple weeks ago to get caught up um, on our website in the sermon archives if you need that. Um, otherwise, hopefully you can, can kind of keep up with, with where we're at today. We're still in the first couple chapters of Revelation, and one of the, one of the real practical things that I get from Revelation, because it's not an inherently practical book, is uh, when everything is falling apart around us, what should a follower of Jesus do? Because for these early Christians, both natural causes and calamities and evil, persecution, tribulation, um, they were both a risk for these ancient Christians. And uh, John, the author of Revelation, has some very practical advice. So, I'm going to start uh, in, um, uh, with, with verse 9, and uh, it'll be up on the screen. You can feel free to look in a Bible in front of you as well. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation... And the kingdom, patient in, let me say that again. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So first we see that that's just all a part of following Jesus. Tribulation, patient endurance, all a part of following Jesus. He says, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of of Jesus. So why was he uh, exiled? He was exiled, 
punished, persecuted for following Jesus. And he says, I'm in this with you. I'm a partner in the tribulation. So that tells us that maybe a lot of what Revelation is talking about was actually going on back then. Doesn't mean it was only going on back then, but it was certainly started back then. And I also, and I say this time and time again, tribulation, difficult circumstances, it's all a part of following Jesus. You can never look at your life circumstances and assume it's a reflection of your standing with God. Okay, the heavyweights like John, who was Jesus' best friend on earth, he was a partner in suffering for and with Jesus. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was praying on a Sunday. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. See, back then, each city had a gathering of Christians, and that was the city's church. It wasn't like we have here where there's a church on every corner, and you could, like, leave a church and go to another church or whatever. You had a church, a gathering, a small gathering, probably not even the size of this group here, um, of Christians in that city. And these were seven real churches, historically verifiable churches, okay? So, down in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands <clears throat> are the seven churches. So, a couple quick notes about that symbolism. Um, first of all, I think the most important imagery in the whole thing is Jesus standing, the Son of Man blazing glory at Obvious that's Jesus, the risen one. He was dead and now he's alive. And, and, and where is he standing? What is his proximity to the lampstands? He is in the midst of the lampstands. And what are the lampstands? They're the churches. So we get this imagery in the midst of worldwide chaos for Christians. Jesus is standing in the midst of the lampstands. So you're a Christian in the early church and the world's falling apart. And there's this vision from God who comes from, that comes from one of the most respected Christians on the planet at the time, ever, really, of Jesus standing in the midst of his churches. So that, you would think, would bring comfort. Jesus in the midst of the churches, and the church being the light 
source for the world. And then the seven stars, there's a couple ways to, to think about that. No need to spend a lot of time and energy on it. The word for angel can either be translated angel or messenger. And so Jesus is either saying that, every, that these churches have an angel, like protecting them, or he's simply saying, because where's John? John is exiled to Patmos, so naturally there's going to have to be seven copies of this letter, and it's going to have to get to seven churches. Who's going to take it? A messenger. And so what Jesus could be saying is, the seven stars in my hand are the seven messengers to the seven churches, like giving special honor to the, just the human messengers that risk life and limb to get, those, uh, to get that copy to each church. So stars are either angels or messengers, but the, the real imagery is Jesus is standing in the midst of these churches. And so what we can say today, if we are going through a difficult time in life right now, he's in our midst. In fact, persecution, tribulation, circumstances that require patient endurance are what John calls ours in Christ Jesus. Like John's like, difficulties are a part of your journey if you are following Jesus. He was in their midst as they endured great tribulation. All right. On to what Jesus says to the churches and what we can learn for our lives today. Because Jesus has something specific for each of these seven churches. And today I'm going to walk you through some excerpts. There's no way I can go through this verse by verse uh, because I want to wrap this series up by Thanksgiving. So we're going to walk through like clips from each church, and I want you to pay specific attention to these are Christians enduring immense persecution from external sources. Where does Jesus say, how does Jesus say they should respond? How are they supposed to prep for doomsday? Okay, here we go. <clears throat> he starts off with Ephesus. Verse 2. I know your works. This is Jesus talking to the Christians in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You've lost your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So Jesus says he sees them. He sees what they're going through, and I suppose there's some consolation or uh, sympathy, some appreciation, like implied there. He says, I see you. I see what you're going through. But Jesus spends most of the paragraph to the church in Ephesus telling them to work on themselves. It's like, yeah, you're going through a tough time right now. Yes, the actions of other people on thoughts and beliefs are negatively impacting you. I get it. You done whining about it? 
work on yourself. I don't, I know, I know. It's really rough out. The government's doing this stuff. They're taking this. They're, that person's thinking that. They're voting like that. Your company. I, I get it. You done? Work on yourself. I, I know, I know. Work on yourself. Like Jesus acknowledges the things they're going through, and then he says, work on yourself. If you don't, I will remove your lampstand. So it seems like what he's saying is the presence of Jesus will be gone if you don't work on yourself. Because repent is a big scary word. It just means like, like about face, make, make a, a, a shift. The, the best way that I know how to describe repentance um, is like after you've just done your holiday binge and you've gained nine pounds and, you know, and you're just like, okay, I got to be done. Okay, that's, that's, it's not being perfect. It's simply making that change of, I, I got to fix this. I got to correct the course. Again, Jesus is like, fix it. Stop it. Okay? <clears throat> so they have all kinds of problems, all kinds of threats, and Jesus tells them to repent. And if they don't, he's going to remove them. So, for you. Yeah, it's tough to work where you work. People in your neighborhood don't vote like you. They don't think like you. They don't agree with your side of the debate. You work on you. And this is the same for me. I get frustrated at the way people's actions affect me. Jesus is like, you work on you. And it's also interesting because they got all this stuff going on around them, and Jesus is like, I'll remove you. How about get rid of the bad guys, Jesus? He's like, I'll remove you. Okay. <clears throat> Smyrna, next church. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. So he's saying, like, in poverty, you are spiritually rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Those are scary words coming from Jesus, right? Hey, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil is about to uh, throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. So synagogue of Satan probably has to do with um, <clears throat> Jewish people who had converted to Christianity. There was a huge problem in the early church of uh, people with a strong Jewish background, Jewish heritage, and they tried to kind of mix faiths and require of, of Gentile Christians, uh, like, like telling them, you need to be circumcised or you're not right with God, or putting Jewish customs onto Christians, and it created all kinds of problems and divisions in the early church. Now remember, <clears throat> we said one of the rules for the series is that we're not anti-Semitic. Christians have done plenty of mean things to Jewish people over the years. This was a season where Jews caused a lot of problems for Christians. It's just what we do as humans. But in this particular season, that was a major problem in the early church. And it seems to be what Jesus calls, is calling a synagogue of Satan. He says, <clears throat> I know that you're being persecuted all over the place. 
be faithful unto death. So, stockpile ammo? No. Be faithful unto death. They're going to be wrongly imprisoned. They're going to suffer. They're going to be persecuted. And what's he tell them to do? Be faithful through the persecution. Okay. Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Remember, one of the visions of Jesus was out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, so it's the idea of his words being powerful. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Repent again. Repent. comes back to that word continually through these, this section with the churches. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus says Satan's throne is where you live, and people are killing Christians where you live, but if you don't stop making compromises in your faith, I'll come and put a stop to you. Again, how about you stop the bad guys, Jesus? Now, maybe some would say Revelation, the rest of Revelation is about him stopping the bad guys, but he's primarily focused on them getting things right. What I want you to see is that Jesus acknowledges the fierce persecution all around. He doesn't tell Christians to worry about anything but their own behavior. Now, Nicolaitans was probably some fact, faction of Christianity that was, that was twisted. A lot of that language seems to be saying basically there were, there were Christians that were embracing pagan, secular culture, the equivalent today of like witchcraft, okay? They're, pro they're doing things that are far from the guidelines of, of spiritual purity, moral purity. They're in this other lifestyle. They're compromising their lifestyle. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I know you're being fiercely persecuted. You get your stuff right. And he uses that repent word again. So, The thing for us to ask is, as we grow frustrated and weary with all kinds of world change, America change, political opinions, all sorts of sides of all sorts of debates and all the tension that's here is, are we honoring God with our browser history, with our thought life, are we honoring God in our conversations, or have we filled them with gossip and slander and judgment? I mean, I, I, it's not uncommon to hear Christians complaining about the political environment of their workplace, all the while using words like idiots and insane, and I mean, just, I mean, we are abusing each other behind each other's backs and to each other's faces while we're complaining about 
the sin in the world. And what it seems to me Jesus is saying is here, yeah, I got that when it's time. You focus on you. He's also essentially saying, this is a tough one for me. And I'll say it like first, Alex, if you are not thriving spiritually, it's on you. Because it's easy for us to get frustrated, as I am, that I am not emotionally, spiritually, mentally, inner peace, any of the metrics. I'm like not where I want to be. And it's because these past 18 months, especially as a church leader, has been the most difficult thing I have ever had to go through. And I've been through some difficult things in life. And it's frustrating and I get mad and I'm not where I should be and it's easy to blame the pressure that I get from people on that. But if I am anywhere but where I want to be with Jesus, guess whose fault it is? It's mine and mine alone. And if you are not thriving spiritually right now, if you are not where you know you should be with Jesus, it is not the government's fault. It is not political opinion, the other side, the other. It is nobody's fault but yours, just like it's nobody's fault with mine. Just like it's nobody else's fault but mine. And so, as Jesus says, it's time for me to quit complaining and repent and do the things that I... He's like... You guys are being persecuted unto death, but you should still be thriving spiritually. Biblically, there is no environment that we could ever live in where we don't have the ability to thrive spiritually. And if there's a takeaway anywhere in Jesus' words to the people in Revelation, it's that there is no environment that exists under heaven that robs us externally from our ability to connect with Jesus at high levels. If anything, the worse it gets out there, the easier the path for us to grow spiritually. All right, that rant's done. Let's move on to the next. i got to go quick. I know your works. This is uh, Thyatira. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, uh, that your latter works exceed the first, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold. Anytime you see behold, like it's usually in the English Standard Version, it means like check this out, okay? She says, check this out. I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Now, I included that because I want you to know that Jezebel is an Old Testament figure. Hundreds of years before Jesus, she was a queen of God's people. Her heart was very far from God, and she led Israel into pagan worship. Okay, so something's going on here that Jesus is comparing to Jezebel. It's not talking about an actual person per se as a, as a faction of Christians that are there in the church. And when he says, I will kill the children, we know from Matthew 18, Jesus does not harm children. So he's talking about the things that result 
from this evil behavior, Jesus will put an end to. Okay? But did you see the, um, the, the, the repent word again? Jesus says in the midst of global persecution and unrest, you focus on you. Here's Sardis. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then that you received what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Repent. See the way it always goes back to, they're going through immense difficulty. And he's like, you focus on. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The world is collapsing around you. The government's out to take away your rights and your faith. You focus on your own expression of faith and repent. Philadelphia, they get all um, the encouragement. Okay, so you'll read that in your homework. The last one's Laodicea. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. could also be translated, I will vomit you out. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich with white garments, and in white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove. Like That's how he closes out. Listen, I know it's harsh. I love you, and I reprove and rebuke those that I love. So be zealous, and one more time he says, repent. I don't see anything in any of these scriptures about stockpiling or boycotting or protesting or judging. Just because it's not there doesn't mean that those things are wrong or inappropriate. But what I want you to see is the vast majority of time is spent calling for personal repentance. Jesus spends the energy saying essentially, you focus on you, and that'll keep you busy. These were Christians who were being sawed in half, literally. Their children were being thrown to the lions. Like, we're going crazy because they tried to slide in happy holidays over Merry Christmas. They were being sawed in half. Government was completely against them. Jesus doesn't tell them, focus on out there. He tells them, focus inward and clean up your own spiritual messes individually. So what I'd like for you to do is to think about how much energy and anxiety you have surrendered to things that are outside the scope of what Jesus told the early Christians to focus on. Does your approach to life these days match the approach Jesus advocates for in the early Jesus movement? Think about that. When everything's falling apart, remember that Jesus is still walking in our midst. 
And remember that there is nothing in all of creation that can keep you from thriving spiritually. That is on you and me in my own life and us alone, and there are no excuses out there to do anything but thrive spiritually. We're as spiritual and connected with God as we want to be, and nothing can take that from us. All right, we stand with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for the promises of your word. And your word has a way of stinging but ringing true, of wounding but bringing peace. And so I pray that uh, you would point out very clearly to us in our own lives the things that we have to work on and give us the humility that it takes to do that difficult uh, inner kind of work And teach us to trust you to handle the rest. Thank you for walking in our midst no matter what we're going through. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good week, everybody.